evidence and answers. Learning to think well and reason properly is an essential skill every student must have. That is why a basic grounding in good philosophy is important for every student. Unfortunately, this is not the goal of many philosophy classes at the universities today. Most philosophy courses teach an ideology that corrodes a Christian's faith. How can we equip our students for not only classes in philosophy, but also for the challenges of the university campus? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. The last time we were together, Pat and Dr. Richard Howe discussed philosophy at the university and how we can prepare our students for the challenges they will face today. Now, on to part two of this fascinating interview. I have to say, Pat, there are Christians and there are evangelicals today who are analytic philosophers. So I don't want to make it sound like the classical tradition is exclusively Christian and the analytic method is secular. But I will say that those aspects of the modern philosophy department that are secular are very much in this analytic tradition. Yes. Now tell us, how did this you know, shift in philosophy take place? I mean, what you're describing here seems to eliminate centuries of classic philosophy here. Yes, it, it does. And I think it, it, a, a lot of it had to do with this paradigm shift that I think happened with this Cartesianism and the implication that there are things even being earlier than that in the, in the late Middle Ages, uh, the debate over universals, for example, which goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks, but also has always been sort of revisited over and over again. And these things have implications for how we know things about reality. And so, it, and it was a gradual thing. I mean, Descartes was a Christian. Christianity still was a prominent voice in the conversation, even into the you know uh, 18th century, uh, by some prominent. But it eventually begins to show really what I think is this bankruptcy uh, over the course of times. And so now I will have to add though, within about the say post World War II uh, Anglo-American philosophy, there has been a resurgence of Christian thinking. Now it's not classical necessarily. It's not evangelical even in terms of its uh, specifics. But I, I think. Maybe you'll remember, maybe your listeners will remember the, or have seen references to the Time magazine that came out in the 60s, Is God Dead? You know, it was that black cover with the big red letters, Is God Dead? And it was, it was pointing out the God is Dead movement, namely the concept of God no longer had any viability in the intellectual life. What a lot of people don't know was in, within just a few short years after that Time magazine, another Time magazine came out and the cover said, is God coming back to life? And the point there was, well, wait a minute, we may have spoke too soon because there's, there's this increasing presence of Christian philosophers. You think of people like Alvin Plantinga, for example, coming on the scene. And they're not just people at Christian Bible colleges or universities. They're people that are making inroads in full-bore academic uh, philosophy. So it's, it's not as bleak as some people might think, but it's not as rosy as we wished it was. Uh, in terms of the landscape. Yeah, so describe for us, you stated that most of the philosophy you're going to get now at the regular university will be analytic uh, philosophy. Describe that a little bit more to us. I believe we're talking, when we're talking analytic philosophy, we're basically doing philosophy from a naturalist worldview perspective. Is that correct? It can be. And in its inception, it explicitly was. 
So the origins of what we identify now as analytic philosophy begins with a logical positivist. People like A.J. Ayer, just before his time and then during his time, so it'd be late 19th and then into the 20th century, really all the way up to the middle part of the 20th century. And these guys, what they were trying to do was say, well, look, philosophy needs to be real rigorous because what had been happening in Europe primarily, what passed for philosophy was this really weird kind of quasi-religious kind of thinking that might strike some people like New Age or whatever. It certainly wasn't Christian in, in, a, in any meaningful sense. And so there was a rebellion against that. Go, You know what? We need to make philosophy rigorous, logically rigorous. So the logic just became the tool to this really, really strict analysis of terms and clarification of terms and categories. But I think went too far. It ended up concluding early on that things that weren't susceptible to the tools of math and logic as it was considered, then was just nonsense. Well, that included theology and metaphysics. So you got A.J. Ayer just saying, hey, this religious talk, it's not even false. It's completely meaningless. Is what, and he even said that about ethics, that these categories. So that was the origin of what we call analytic philosophy. That's how it started then you go, what kind of hope is there going to be? But it began to sort of reel itself in a little bit and, and tried not to be quite so hostile to these things. And so you started having a little bit more leaking into the analytic school of thinking of people that gave a little bit more credence to some of these theological and philosophical. So now we sort of have an ongoing debate or war. Even within analytic philosophy, you'll find some who are sympathetic to theological and religious concerns and some who are just naturalists and, uh, you know, atheists. I think also you'll notice just one last quick thought is that a lot of that really, really strident atheism has now surrounded itself by the scientists. So you've got people like Richard Dawkins, for example, or Peter Atkins, who are these crusaders of atheism, but they're coming at it not from a philosophical perspective, but from just a natural scientific perspective. And I go, okay, well, that's that's fine, but these guys are so bad at philosophy, it makes their atheism look bad. So it's not completely that way. You still find this sort of naturalism, atheism among a lot of philosophy too, but at least it has a lot more integrity than I think uh, people like Richard Dawkins or Peter Atkins, Atkins have when they deal with these questions. You know, Richard, a lot of parents tell me that it was after their child took either the sciences or philosophy class that they really began to question their faith, and many ended up, you know, walking away from their faith. You know, why is modern philosophy, you know, that we see at the university, why, why is that disruptive to a Christian's faith? That's, this is a great and very important question to me, because I lost my faith at university. I mean, I would say when I was 16, I wasn't raised in the church, but friends of mine in high school helped me understand my need for a Savior, and I came to understand what Jesus did for me trusted Christ when I was 16, but I lost my faith, believe it or not, at a Christian college. And I think one of the biggest things that explains that, in my case, and so I, I hate to think that this is probably a, more, a lot more widespread, and that was my church did not at all prepare me for the challenges and questions that I was going to run into at university. One of the things I think is tragic is have a Christian grow up through a local church, and then the first time they ever hear a particular kind of question, like, well, what about people that never heard the gospel? Or did you know that there are variations in biblical manuscripts? Or the first time they hear that question is at the university. And it makes them go, well, what has my church been hiding from me? What have they been trying to 
keep me from hearing. And that may, it sends the false signal like, oh, well, we really don't have an answer for these things. That's why we didn't bring it up. So that's why I'm such a fan of doing apologetics in the local church before these young people get too far in their schooling, at least so they can begin to confront some of these questions in the environment of their, their own local church and not let that university be the first person to do that. And, and Norm Geisler told us stuff when I was a student of his at Dallas Seminary before I ended up leaving seminary to go back to university to do philosophy. But he used to tell us, before you do philosophy, you need to be well-grounded in Christian apologetics. He said, because philosophy will change you if you go off and do it without really be having your feet planted deeply as to well, why do you hold the philosophical views that you do hold as a Christian. So I strongly encourage people to, you know, parents to make sure their young people are grounded in this. You know, what's interesting in J.P. Moreland's book, Love Your God With All Your Mind, and the, the subtitle is The Role of Reason in the Life of the Soul. There's a chapter in that book titled How We Lost the Christian Mind. It's worth the whole book because he does a, a reconnaissance of, well, what was going on in America in the late 19th into the 20th century that eventually by the time we get it after the Second World War, most American Christianity was anti-intellectual. Not just that it wasn't academic and intellectual, but it was against it. And he does, and the reasons were for the same reasons that some people may have today, hey, we send our kids off to university, they're losing their faith. So maybe the problem is higher learning, higher education. Maybe that's the mistake. Right. You go, no, that's not the mistake. The mistake is we should have been teaching people how to answer those challenges. That's what we need to be doing. Yes, you know, and I think a lot of students that I talk to when they take their uh, philosophy class, it's a lot of it's coming from the naturalist worldview perspective. And, uh, you know, a lot of questions that they get from their philosophy professor has to do, you know, with God and evil, of which often they're ill-prepared to answer, but also the nature of truth. The professor's coming at it from a naturalist perspective, and they end up coming out of the class saying, well, all truth is, is, is it's relative. You know, can we really know Absolutely. reality kind of thing? Is that what you're seeing today? Absolutely, yeah. And it's, and it's not confined to the philosophy department. In my experience, the young people coming into the, coming into the university were already moral relativists. They were already, well, I don't really believe, who are we to say wow. kind of attitude. And they were already that way coming into the university. And oddly, most of the time, at least when I was going through graduate school in the 80s, the one department that at least resisted moral relativism was the philosophy department. Now, they might not come to the right moral conclusions, but it's, a, it's two different things to be a, a relativist, relativist to say there is no moral truth about something and to say, on the other hand, well, I think there is a moral truth, and then we just think that they get the wrong answer, right? That's, at least they're on the right path to think there is a right or wrong answer. Now we can just have the debate. But if they don't even believe there is a right or wrong answer, you can't even have a debate over who's right and who's wrong with respect to things like abortion or homosexuality. Now, I think that's probably changing. I haven't been in a university philosophy department like a student in decades, so I don't, I, I don't know how much it's changing. But yes, the university campus more broadly is anti-theistic and anti-Christian in many, many respects. And so it's a hostility that in some times that I've seen doesn't have a lot of integrity. It's not like a considered judgment they've come to based on an examination of the evidence. It's like an anger that they have where they're not even interested in the debate and the, and the evidence. They want to shout you down or whatever. So again, we've got to be able to be prepared to help young people 
be ready for this stuff already in the local church. And there are lots of organizations that can come alongside. You and I were talking before we started, we were talking about Greg Kokel and, and his ministry, Stand to Reason. It's a tremendous ministry with their reality conferences that they do around the country. I was just at one recently here in the Southeast. But there are numerous parachurch ministries that can come alongside of the local church to help and deal with scientific issues, philosophical issues, moral issues, political issues, to give a cogent Christian perspective that can stand the, in the marketplace of ideas against a lot of this naturalism that's pervaded, especially in, in the sciences. Yeah, so you kind of told us what it is that a Christian will be going up against, and you touched on it a little bit, but as a Christian then going into this arena of philosophy, whether you're going to major in it or you're just going to take some classes in it, or like you did, you know, go on and well, get a full-on graduate degrees in it. How should a Christian uh, approach the world of philosophy? Well, in addition to the point we were talking about earlier about just being grounded, and really uh, not just in apologetics, but grounded in the entire Christian worldview of theology as well and biblical teaching, I think probably the one, one of the most important things that kept me grounded as a Christian was staying connected with my mentor or mentors. I had at least two mentors. One, I already mentioned Norm Geisler. He would call me when I had already left Dallas and was back in Mississippi at Ole Miss, just doing graduate master's degree philosophy. He'd call me up. What are you taking this semester? You know, we mm-hmm. talked. And the other mentor was one of my older brothers, Dr. Tom Howe, who's also at Southern Evangelical Seminary. And between the two of them, keeping tabs on me and then having people to go back to to say, okay, I'm wrestling with this idea. I'm not sure I know how to reconcile what, what seems to be true here with what I know already to be true as a Christian. Help me wrestle with this. I think that's, that's so important that people have that. And then the last one, one we just mentioned as well, was a local church. I regret that there are local churches, at least in my experience, that are afraid to let people ask questions, maybe because they don't know how to answer them. So let's suppose you've got a young person who's gone off to college. Now they've been there one semester or two years. They're beginning to have some doubts. There needs to be some place in their local church where they can comfortably vet, vent those doubts to somebody and wrestle with these ideas. But I'm afraid, again, in my experience, so many local churches would condemn that. So you shouldn't be doubting. You just need to have faith. You need to, you know, you need to quit taking those classes. No, that's not the way to deal with it. If we've got the truth, then the truth is not afraid of the challenges. What is it that your professor said? Let's, let's find out. Let's read the sources. Let's listen to some debates. Let's have conversation on this stuff, and let's wrestle with it. There's nothing wrong, in, necessarily wrong, with having doubts, because as you grow from your adolescence into young adulthood, you're bound to reconsider some things you grew up with, and it's worth doing the deep analysis, because I'm convinced that you can survive that. That's what I did. I was losing my faith in Christianity as a, you know, about halfway through my college experience. And it was apologists through their ministries, people like a Josh McDowell, for example, or R.C. Sproul and Norm Geisler, and then my brother Tom and my oldest brother Don. They, they were pouring into me and letting me wrestle with these things and coming through uh, with that. So we need these, you know, be grounded in apologetics, be connected with a local church that reinforces those apologetics and stay connected to your mentors when you leave that local church and go to the campus. Yeah, I think those are three excellent, excellent suggestions there. You know, I was just at a lunch uh, before I came on the radio here with you, and 
uh, we were celebrating a friend's uh, of mine graduation, and he had me sit next to his son who graduated, you know, just graduated from Portland State University and abandoned his Christian faith. Mm. He's kind of agnostic atheist at this point. And, you know, the purpose of that graduation dinner was to celebrate my friend's graduation. But instead, his son was over there asking me a ton of questions. Um, wow. And the whole table was kind of riveted on our conversation. And I kept trying to take a break and focus on the graduate and his graduation. <laughs> but it kept coming back to his son and kept asking me all these questions. And, you know, after two hours, he still wanted to talk to me, but we had to leave the restaurant. And he kind of looked at me and said, he said, you're the only Christian, really, that took time to answer my questions. Most don't want to answer my questions. Wow. And, and I looked wow. at my friend and I said, hey, I'm sorry. The focus is on you, you know, not on me and your son here. And he goes, oh, no, I put you next to my son for a reason. This is exactly why I put you there. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm so glad uh, it was you there. Yeah, so what you're saying is absolutely key, you know, uh, be grounded in apologetics uh, in the Christian worldview, and, but have that mentor and for a lot of students, I'm going to say it's going to be your your parent. Parents are often the first person they kind of turn to, uh, Christian parents, that is, and starts asking all these questions. And so parents should be well-equipped to start answering Absolutely. their challenges, wouldn't you say? Absolutely, yeah, exactly. And uh, and I'm glad you said that. I didn't want to assume that somehow the mentor would be anything other than the parents. So that's a, an encouragement for the parents to bone up on these things with these questions because look you don't always have to have you don't always have to know the right answer but in those areas where one might not say hey that's not really something i'm conversing with know some sources you know know sources to direct people to say hey that's a good question i'm not a physicist but here's a physicist who's a christian that deals with those things here's his book or his paper yeah, so you don't always have to be a PhD in philosophy or a D-man in apologetics or whatever, anybody. You don't always have to do that, but just know what you can and know where to direct people to additional uh, resources. Yes, and tell us, you know, what are some good resources for the Christian student who will study philosophy, but also for the parent who will need to get ready for the challenges that his son or daughter will start asking after they take philosophy 101 or biology 101? Yes. So I think one book, uh, uh, Norm Geisler's and Paul Feinberg's book, Introduction to Philosophy, A Christian Perspective. So it's a great treatment of the basic categories and terms and ideas that make up the major parts of philosophy. And it gives a person a pegboard on which then they, they can start hanging things as they come, come across. Like, okay, this is an epistemological question. This is metaphysics. This is ethic. This is logic, that kind of thing. And also another one that Geiser wrote, with uh, co-wrote with Winfred Cordwin, uh, C-O-R-D-U-A-N, uh, is called the uh, Philosophy of Religion. So that one then goes more in depth, specifically with questions surrounding the existence and nature of God and the nature of religious experience from a philosophical perspective. And then one guy that I really, really have come to like in the past uh, uh, years is a contemporary uh, Thomistic philosopher named Edward Fazer. He wrote a great tiny little paperback book titled Aquinas. It's a series of books that are called Beginner's Guides, and he's written several of the series, including the one on Aquinas. Now, I'm a big fan of Thomas Aquinas, and I know you're not surprised to hear that with your, <laughs> your, with your uh, background. It's like, yeah, yeah. So uh, his little book on Aquinas. And then the last one I'll mention is also by Fazer. It's titled The Last Superstition. Now, ostensibly, the book is trying to respond to the new atheism. 
And somebody might look at that and go, well, you know, that's kind of passe. The new atheism novelty's worn off. But what's so good about Phaser's Last Superstition? More than any other book I've ever seen, he really puts the cookies on the bottom shelf of why this classical approach matters so much. That dominated in Christian thinking from the church fathers up through uh, almost the entire Middle Ages and spilling a little bit over into the modern era. That faded away pretty quickly after that. Phaser does a great job of going, here's what's at stake in, in these categories and why they serviced Christian theology so well and why it's no coincidence that as that philosophical model began to fade, you see a concomitant fading of orthodox theology coming on the scene. So Last Superstition by Edward Phaser, those are four sources that come to mind to me when I think of the Christian and philosophy. Yes, and also some great websites out there. You've got yours. Uh, tell us about that. But Southern Evangelical also has a good one. Absolutely. So my website is richardghow.com. It is actually under major uh, renovation. So only a, well, right now what you'll see is the old renovation, so it's still accessible. But as soon as I start trying to upload the latest versions, a lot of it's going to be inaccessible. But it'll be pretty quick. I'll get it all up. So you go to richardghow.com. I've got a lot of sources of things I've done, things others done, links to things on the Internet on philosophy, uh, philosophy, uh, apologetics, and, and uh, theology. But also, yes, ses.edu. So Southern Evangelical Seminary was the first seminary in the United States to have a predominantly or apologetics-oriented curriculum, and it was one of the first, and it, it's really, we're top-heavy in apologetics, as you know, and I would recommend, we got a lot of resources, we have a YouTube channel at SES, you can get all these through the SES.edu link that you can jump on from the professors, and also people can uh, take courses, uh, even audit a course, even certificate courses. In fact, I start a course Monday, but I start a course just as an example on new religious movements, uh, what we used to call the cults. So look through the SES.edu and see some of the classes people may want to audit a class in philosophy. I teach a class titled Classical Philosophy. I'll be doing that in, in October, God willing. Love to have people join. Yeah, and I also think people ought to go on and look at the debates. You've debated some of the top atheists out there, and I think when they see how Christian philosophers and Christian thinkers, Christian scientists, Christian theologians, Christian apologists interact with these atheists, I think it's really eye-opening, and but also builds a lot of confidence in Christians when they see in a lot of these debates that many times those from the Christian perspective have better answers, but also can meet the challenges and answer the challenges of some of the top atheists out there. I think I saw that when you were debating, was it Christopher Hitchens? No, I actually uh, debated, debated uh, Michael Shermer. Michael Shermer, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, in fact, they can watch that. If they go to richardghow.com, you'll see the YouTube icon for my YouTube channel. You click on that, and it's one of the first videos you'll see. That was fun. And, uh, and, and, and another great resource is Frank Turek. He's an SES product, and his I don't have enough faith to be, the atheist, to be an atheist. He does a lot of these debates in college campus, so it's another, another great resource. So, yeah, Michael Shermer, I've debated Dan Barker. I've debated several local atheists here. I live in the Atlanta area. And we've got some uh, atheists in the area, and some of those debates are accessible as well through the, through the YouTube channel. I tell you, I find it very encouraging. When I was a younger Christian and younger philosopher, and I saw some of these Christians taking on, in a respectful way, but in a formidable way, directly taking on these atheist challenges, it just encouraged me so much to see a strong intellectual case for the existence of God and the reliability of the Bible, it's his historicity and, the, and, and things like that. And of course, Norm Geiser uh, couldn't say enough about the man in terms of the resources one can get 
on the internet from him and his Norman Geiser International Ministries website. Well, you've been listening to our interview with Dr. Richard Howe, Professor Emeritus of Philosophy and Apologetics and the Norm Geisler Chair of Christian Apologetics at Southern Evangelical Seminary there in Charlotte, North Carolina, helping us understand the challenges of philosophy at the public university today. So, Richard, thanks again for being a guest here with us on Evidence and Answers. Thanks, Pat. Once again, we've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. You'll find we have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, your Bible study, or even schedule a conference at your church or location, give him a call in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Be sure to use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio free to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the Air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to partner with us, please head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucharan. Oh, 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 oh,